But I believe that by overwhelming majority in all the Americas, you and I in the long run, and if it be necessary, you and I will act together to protect, to defend by every means at our command. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast, where we discuss leaders, their decisions, and how they shape the world we live in today. Welcome to the History in Motion podcast. In today's episode, we venture back to a tumultuous era in the 20th century, one of extraordinary change and challenge, which left an indelible mark on millions of lives. It's the year 1947, and the scene is set in the Indian subcontinent, at the crossroads of an impending and monumental event, the partition of India. Imagine the British Raj drawing to a close, a country in upheaval, and two new nations, India and Pakistan, being carved out of it. We'll navigate through the labyrinth of political negotiations, unravel the narratives of communal tension, and spotlight the profound human stories that are all too often overshadowed by grand historical narratives. So whether you're a history buff, a student, or just a curious listener seeking to understand the past to better interpret the present, join us as we take a step back in time and bring history into motion. Welcome to the Partition of India. Welcome everyone to another episode of the History in Motion podcast. And today we are going to be talking about one of the bloodiest and maybe largest human migration in human history. And that's the the partition of India and Pakistan from British India. And what we found pretty interesting about this was all about the decision itself, which again is what we do here and specifically how the decision was made and who made the decision. So the decision that the decision maker that we're focusing on today is Louis Mountbatten, who is a British royalist who spent a lot of time um, in the military and was part of uh, World War II in Burma and then was brought into India to kind of help make this decision. And if anybody knows anything, even slightly about the partition and slightly how India and Pakistan's relationships are today. There's a lot of hatred and a lot of anger and a lot of bloodshed that goes back to the past 75 plus years. So Richie, I think this is going to be a, there's going to be some darker moments here. There's going to be some lighter moments, but overall, this is, this was a very dark time for human history and just almost with the more we think about it, the more we talk about it, almost, you can't even put it words to it we're going to be lost for words i'm sure a few times as we move through it i'm I'm kind of lost for words myself now trying to even just describe it in a short sentence so that's kind of where we're going today yeah i think just doing the research before we kick off um to kind of get a lay of the land i think this is definitely one of the heavier episodes that we've done research for i know over the last like week and a half two weeks when i was jumping into the research and particularly the violence that occurred um during this moment in history you know there was a few times where i just had to kind of take a step back and really just sit with it because you know it was very heavy and very dark and i think when you unpack certain historical events that happen you're kind of confounded with this paradoxical level of violence because it seems so distant but it's it's not we're talking what 80 years ago not even really to one of the most violent events, you know, in I, I'd say in the in, in, in modern history, essentially, as sure. the kind of this pre-colonial era. But 
I think, you know, that's a good kind of starting point for us. So I think it might be important to begin with the end in mind here. So it was on August 14th and 15th in 1947 that the partition officially took place. Pakistan was created on August 14th and India became independent on August 15th when Sir Cyril Radcliffe's boundary split Punjab and Bengal, uh, Bengal and Pakistan into you know their own states based on uh, religious and you know communal groupings. Shortly after, almost immediately after, through the year of 1947, 1948, massive violence and population exchanges happened between these two newly formed nations. And shortly after that, in October 1947, the first Indo-Pakistani war begins over the disputed territory of Kashmir, which, you know, still has reverberations to this day. But to unpack this history, you know, you have to take it pretty far back to the pre-colonial era or the colonial era, I should say, in, in terms of like what we would consider pre-partition. Um, so I'll just do a quick level seven to cover about 300 years of history in about two and a half minutes. <laughs> so we're going to try to you know, get as much as we can to kind of get some level setting in terms of the context and the backdrop of, of what was happening prior to the partition. So the British arrived in India in the 1600s as traders with the East India Company. By the mid-1800s, following the Indian Rebellion of 1857, the British Crown announced direct control beginning the period known as the Raj. So the Raj, quote-unquote, typically refers to the British Raj, which is a period of British colonial rule in the Indian subcontinent between 1858 and 1947, so right to the cusp of the partition. It began with the rebellion in 1857 and the consequential dissolution of the British East India Company. Following this, the British Empire enacted the Government of India Act in 1858 and placed the Indian territories directly under the rule of the British Crown, making the Queen the Emperor, Empress of India. During this period, the British governed most parts of the subcontinent, which includes present-day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Myanmar. The territories were either directly administered by the British government or by Indian princes who had acknowledged British sovereignty in return for local autonomy. This era witnessed pretty transformative changes in terms of their economy, their society, and the infrastructure of the region as a whole. Obviously, there's good and bad impacts of this type of rule and kind of administration. There were, you know, there was this introduction of very modern aspects of infrastructure. You see railways, education reform, legal system. But in the same vein, there's obviously a high level of exploitation, economic stagnation, famine, cultural imperialism. India was often referred to as the jewel of the British Empire. I'm sure that has something to do with the exploitive nature of British rule in India. Uh, but the Raj period ended in August 1947, when India and Pakistan gained independence from British rule. And really, this was because of you know a post-World War II world where a weakened Britain decided to end its rule leading to the partition of British India into independent dominions of India and Pakistan in 1947, and ultimately leads us to our conversation, which is this massive population transfer that had to endure both Hindu, Muslim, Sikh tensions that ended the British rule and marked this kind of modern birth, very violent birth, I would say, of modern India and Pakistan. Yeah, I think I was just, as you were speaking there, thinking a lot back to our King Leopold episode with the Congo and how we talked about colonialism in Africa, and there was a lot of things that you were saying that were very, very similar of taking a one giant place and looking at it through a monolithic view of British India. And I think as we both know, India's 
incredibly diverse um maybe and it's funny religion is maybe the one thing that that is probably unique across the whole the whole country today but we see a lot of the you know different tribes different princes some doing well from the british arriving and some doing very poorly and some commoners doing very poorly as well and i think we saw the same thing in in africa as well and the exploitation and all of those sort of things that come with colonialism but then there is also part of the moving forward of certain parts of society building infrastructure things like that and we even will see with a few characters that come up in the partition even being educated in the british system and um, more wealthy indians having the opportunity to to go to cambridge and oxford and those places back before being not you know white and british was still like the number one thing in the in the eyes of the british you still see you know, wealthy and elite Indians moving to to England and, and getting high level educations, which I always thought was a bit interesting. But from that point, Richie, I think maybe we can flip over and, and bring Louis Mountbatten into the fray, and then we can kind of get into the partition itself. So Louis Mountbatten, born Prince Louis of Battenberg in the year 1900, and he was born in Berkshire, England. So he's known as Mountbatten, but he was born as Battenberg. And so this goes back to some other conversations we've had about royalty in, in, in Europe and how they're pretty much all German in some capacity. So that is a German last name. Um, he was the his grandmother was Queen Victoria's daughter, making him the great grandson of Queen Victoria. His, his mother's younger sister was the Empress of Russia, who was married to Tsar Nicholas II. And for those who, who know, um, Tsar Nicholas II was the last Tsar of Russia. So this was right around the time of the Russian Revolution when his mother's younger sister is over there. But during the outbreak of World War I, the United Kingdom goes to war with Germany and the king has a German last name. Battenbergs have a German last name. And so basically all the British royals change their name in such a way to make it more English. So that's where Mountbatten comes from. So basically it was a royal decree from the king basically instruct everyone to change their names. So now he's officially a Mountbatten. And up to this point, he had been in boarding school and kind of following going to a military academy at a quite a young age, which is pretty common for a lot of British royal royalists to pursue a um, career, specifically in the Navy. It's it's interesting how you see like the infantry and the army is, is not as prestigious as the Navy. If we think of Britain over the years, they've always been known for having the strongest Navy in the world and controlling the seas and all of their colonies relying on the strong British Navy. So being a commander in the Royal Navy is definitely one of the highest um, levels that anybody can get to, let alone a, a royalist. So World War One breaks out and Louis Mountbatten is at the age of 16. He's joined a battle cruiser named the HMS Lion. So he started off as the lowest rank in the Navy and he spent some time um, during World War One serving in the Navy. He ends up ending the war off um, with the rank of first lieutenant of a small military ship. So he's still quite young. He's only 18 and, the first, and he's already a lieutenant. Part of Chivalry because things are still not fully based on merit back then. There is this, look who he is, look who he's related to. He should have this, this title. Definitely not just a pure merit-based thing. So after the war, he returns to England and he attends Christ College in a program curated for junior officers who are returning from the war or still serving. So he continued to serve on naval ships where he was helping a lot with royal tours of the colonies. So they'd be going to Australia, to Canada, to South Africa, all over the world, to India as well. And so he was able to get really close to the king and the queen and the other royal families and was able to kind of see the world and see the colonies and learn a lot about how government was run in these various colonies. Something that I found interesting too is he was early adopter in wireless technology and electronics because this was starting to become a thing with 
within the navies using radio and other devices to, to communicate and to detect enemy okay. ships and things like that. So he starts to learn. He goes back to school to study some of these topics, and he actually becomes a member of the uh, Institution of Electrical Engineers. And then he ends up having new roles focused in the military where he's like, I think it was called a like wireless commander or something like that, like very silly kind of names for when we kind of think about it, but um, very relevant uh, at the time. Um, and then eventually he becomes an aide to, to King Edwards and again, gets closer and closer um, to the royal family. So before we get into his World War II experience, which is quite extensive, there is he has a very, very interesting personal life and a very, very interesting marriage. So he was he's married to a lady named Edwina in 1922. And I have written down here that their marriage was interesting, to say the least. They were obviously very wealthy, um, spent a lot of money on houses, vacation, luxury goods. They even starred in a film with Charlie Chaplin that was actually never wow. released. But they were definitely definitely high rollers in terms of the people they were, they were meeting, the, the money they were able to spend. But their marriage was known for being non-monogamous in a sense that a quote from Mountbatten after wife had died he said edwina and i spent all our married lives getting into other people's beds so it's very very open that they were doing different things and it's edwina that's known to have had the majority of the fair of the affairs and even one of the affairs that she had was with Nehru during her time in india who was the first no prime minister of way. india yeah so that's how it all comes together here with um you know the, these two worlds colliding yeah it's it was a little, little crazy. So her daughter actually wrote in her memoir, she describes her mother as, quote, a man-eater and her many and her mother's many lovers as a succession of, quote, uncles throughout her childhood. So a lot of men were showing up and this is Uncle, uncle Nehru, Uncle whatever. And um, so, <laughs> yeah, all I think you really need to know on that front. And then in her memoir, she describes her mother as detached, rarely seen preferred traveling the world with her current lover to to mothering children honestly i know this is going to be listened to mostly on audio um my jaw is now off the ground <laughs> um and just for broader context for our listeners we haven't got there yet but nehru was the leader of the indian national congress and a central figure in the indian independence movement and which we'll get to him but that is yeah <laughs> Like he's, when we think, we talk a lot about Gandhi being this key figure in the Hindu side of this, this whole ordeal here. Nehru is really the, the I guess the chief of all of this. He's the, mm -hmm. the top guy. So this is a big, big deal. Um, there's some, again, with, I feel like with people who are at this level, we never know for sure, like what the level of these affairs are. Are they, you know, is it a physical relationship? Is it an emotional one? Is it a bit of both? Is it just something else we don't really know but I think for the two of them they had some sort of arrangement where they just kind of lived their own lives and kind of saw what happened so yeah so that's not where the craziness ends though with the two of them so back then we have to remember heterosexuality was the only way to go um, it was illegal in a lot of places to um, to be gay at all um, to show mm -hmm. any outward affection of it a lot of people would get kicked out of the military or the navy for example for being gay but the rumors was that both Edwina and Louis were both bisexual, even saying that Mountbatten was a homosexual altogether. Um, again, but we don't really know for sure. And then there's some kind of nastier rumors that come out about Louis Mountbatten that he was also a pedophile. So I will preface on this. We don't know for sure. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that's come out in the last five years 
basically all stemming from FBI documentation that's been released as part of, I think they do that after so many years, they release things where they had some, basically a file on him, basically saying they've hearing these rumors that he is doing some things with, with younger, younger men or younger boys, I should say. And it's something to keep an eye on because they, the worry with it, something like this is if he's doing these illegal activities, it's much easier to blackmail him. The Soviets could figure leverage, it out. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's leverage. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I will say that this seems like more of an ongoing thing right now, but I definitely think it has to be mentioned because there's a level two of, he is a Royalist putting something in the British newspaper, writing a book about this is not going to be received the same way it would be if it was just any other Navy officer. Right. So again, I just want to preface that not definitely not proven, but there is a lot of evidence and people stepping forward saying, Hey, I heard this or I saw that. Um, and I think some of the challenges is a lot of secondhand accounts. It's harder to find some of those firsthand accounts, but again, mm. some different, different things coming up. And, and something that I kind of found interesting too, was why a, these rumors would be coming up true or not is being a homosexual man during those times is I kind of have written down here that you had to live in the shadows. If you wanted yep. to pursue that lifestyle, you're going into different places that are kind of off the grid. You're going, it's very hush hush. It's very quiet. It's not Almost like a double life, right? It absolutely is. Yeah. Yep. And so I think with living any sort of sketchy life and people saying, where is this person going? Who are these people who are coming and going? Naturally there's either, rumors that will be started about some more sinister things or you find yourself in places where some of these sinister things are going on whether you take part in them or not it's it's just not a way that any person should have to live but unfortunately that was the sign of the times and you know he had to live this double life and he may have done some things outside of what we would consider the norm today and do some very illegal things but again we'll never know for sure we may know for sure but definitely not right now so something to bring up and yeah, just an interesting life between these two and, and how have everything's come together for them. You're nodding your head for people who are... Who are I, I'm, you know, it's, it's always interesting yeah. with our format. I don't know, like we always have a sense of what the other one's going to say. Yeah. But then sometimes we both just come, you know, ready yep. with some ammo that is going to, you know, leave us both, you know, either one of us kind of <laughs> shocked and... You have most certainly left me speechless. And I didn't think it was going to be about this particular topic uh, within this episode. There's a reason I prefaced, hey, the partition, crazy stuff <laughs> happened. You're like, yeah, I know all about that. It's pretty crazy. And yeah, here we are. And I, th I think it's interesting too when we talk. It always seems to be about the bios of, of these people. And you really learn to, about who they are as people. Because I think we come into this as big event. Who yep. is involved with it? Let's learn a bit about them. So yeah, I came... Uh... Well, we kind of take like a big history approach, right? Like we we're do, trying yeah. to look at themes, trends, patterns, decision-making, you know, just because of the way we kind of approach our discussions. But, you know, it's important to note that behind all these decisions, behind all the context and dates and events and, and narratives, these are people mm -hmm. with their own lives, their own ideologies, their own perversions and, and you know, in some, some cases, but... yeah. At the end of the day, this all ultimately boils down to people. Yep. This is a podcast more about people than I would say about history. And that's, I think, yep. what, what keeps it so interesting. So let's just jump into his World War II history, our experience first, before we get into um, what's going on in India. Because I think it's important that his experience in 
World War II is what leads him to be a central figure in the um, Indian and Pakistani partition. So he was a commander of, of a ship called the HMS Kelly, I believe, uh, during World War II. So he started out, he's been, he was um, known for leading a British convoy through fog to evacuate some allied forces during the Norwegian campaign. But then he's also, so he's had some, again, he's, he's definitely does some things where he's awarded and, and done well. Um, he's actually spent a lot of time building technical aids um, to help with landings, um, like amphibious landings. Just definitely part, you can see a little bit here with, you know, trying to learn the science of war and the technology of war. So he actually, and him and his staff were actually instrumental in creating a few different things. One called the Pluto, which was an underwater oil pipeline to Normandy. Um, the artificial Mulberry Harbor, which is basically a set, a set of like floating, I would say like interchangeable blocks that they could use to create artificial harbors on and then also some tank landing ships so if you ever watch any footage on d-day there's some pretty cool things that they had to do because when they invaded the beaches they didn't have access to a deep water port but you have these huge cargo ships showing up that have tanks and equipment and tens of thousands of men coming off of it and you got to get them ashore so they just created their own harbors they dragged from britain these big floating I guess barge for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. interlock them together. And now you have a temporary port until they were able to capture an actual deep water port. So definitely instrumental in a lot of that stuff, which I think is pretty cool, but it's kind of got a reputation for every, I don't know if it's every boat that he commanded was sunk or severely damaged, but it's a very, very high number of it. So his destroyer was actually sunk by German dive bombers um, during the battle of Crete. So for those who don't know, Crete is a small Island, off the south of Greece um, that I think the Italians and the Greeks and the Germans and then eventually the British were all fighting for, a one that the Germans won. Um, so he was actually on the boat and I think half of his men were killed. He had to jump off, swim to shore and try to rescue his men and try to kind of bring everything back together. Where things for him that um, really, really have a, I guess first Canadians have a dark spot in our history um, that he's heavily involved in is the Dieppe raid. So for those who don't know us Canadians, we know this quite well. Um, the Dieppe raid was in 1942, a raid on a German port that was in occupied France, where mostly Canadian troops were sent in to try and take this heavily defended port. And it was a complete disaster. Tanks were getting bogged down. There was no artillery support. Um, they had really poor, um, intelligence on the whole area and so it was a complete disaster so there's some reading i was doing uh, louis montbatten is not um well regarded amongst canadian veterans and i think for rightly so this is definitely one of the worst military disasters in, in canadian history and the one thing with louis montbatten is he had fantastic public relations like he had a public relations team so he came out of the war as almost like a war hero everyone loved him and thought hey this guy's fantastic you know what he wanted but when you start to talk to people who were close to him the soldiers kind of liked him because they think he was just kind of a, a man's man he would know all of the, his men on the boat know them by name know what their wives names are things like that but other leaders knew that this guy really didn't have what it took to be a commander at the top level and this was part of just his name being so so important and so the thing with the Dieppe raid was his propaganda team said, yeah, 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 it was bad and thousands of people were killed, but we learned a lot. Like this was a, a learning experience for us, which I guess to bring back to a, a modern business lingo, if if it's a learning experience that people think that <laughs> tend to think that the terrible things that happened were okay. Um, and so they used it as a blueprint of basically what not to do when they did the D-Day landings and the D-Day landings be the, being the great success that they were. So you know, a learning opportunity rubbed a lot of Canadians the wrong way and a lot of veterans because 
you didn't need to have that learning opportunity. I think a lot of people knew that just flying straight in um, without the elements of surprise to a heavily defended port was not going to work out very well without the proper equipment. So definitely um, not the in the highest regard over here in Canada. And I think a lot of people are starting to realize that there was a lot of propaganda coming out from him. Um, a couple other interesting things about him was he was very close to Churchill and he was actually given the title of Supreme Allied Commander um, in Southeast Asia and then was given a promotion to full admiral. He was actually at one of the conferences that was held between the Americans, the British and the Soviets trying to decide how Germany would be split up, what to do with Japan, things like that. And the, the story goes that he repeatedly tried to impress Joseph Stalin with his former connections to the Russian imperial family. So you have to remember the Russian imperial family was overthrown by the communists and the whole family was murdered by the communists. Joseph Stalin is now the leader of the communist party. So I just always thought that was weird that you're trying to be mm -hmm. like, yeah, I'm related to the imperial family that you guys all massacred. Um, <laughs> so he kept trying to get his attention, trying to basically just saying like, oh yeah, you know, I'm related to, to Tsar Nicholas and, and his family. So apparently Stalin was just so unimpressed. He kept trying to get like an invitation to Moscow to basically, I guess, hang out with Stalin. I'm, I'm not quite sure. So he was offered no invitation. And the quote is he left with his tail between his legs. So... <laughs> kind of sad a little bit like and especially when you know who, what kind of guy stalin ended up being like he's definitely not someone you can easily get on his good side and he is sure yeah, a tyrant yeah. to the the highest degree so yeah just a very odd thing and then kind of the last piece is how he gets to the indian subcontinent and um part of the british raj is he comes to burma where the japanese and the british with a lot of indian troops and burmese troops are trying to fight off the japanese um, which they end up doing, um, and Mountbatten is given the title Earl Mountbatten of Burma. However, due to pu great public relations, he is seen as a hero and you know spearheading this whole campaign. But a lot of people who are close to that said he didn't really do much. He showed up late, and you know <laughs> showed up. They say like he showed up in his a clean white pressed suit that had like no mud or anything on it where these guys have been fighting in the trenches for years at this point. So yeah, not a lot of love lost between the people who I think were close to him. I'm um, not saying he was a terrible leader, not saying he was a good leader, just seemed like he had good PR, which we've talked about before. You got to have good PR if you're going to, yep. if you're going to be successful in this. So that's kind of where he ends off. Um, so World War II ends and kind of to preface Richie, where we were going with this is the British need somebody to get into India and kind of get a hold on everything that's happening. And they're like, hey, what's the closest place to India? Who's someone we can trust? Hey, Louis Mabatton's right in Burma. He's worked with a lot of Indian troops. He's, he knows the area well. Let's bring him in and let's have him uh, take over everything that's going on in India. What an interesting trajectory to get there. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, that is quite the resume and a lot of accolades to, to ultimately end up in India. And I think so if we kind of pivot back to this idea of or this event of the partition, we kind of lay the groundwork. I know we touched on it a, a bit. Uh, but just to reiterate, so it was the partition of India in 1947. So again, it's the division of British India into two independent dominions. So you have India and Pakistan. A lot of this is driven by escalating communal tensions, growing demand for a separate Muslim state by the All India Muslim League. You know, the partition kind of marked the end of the British colonial rule in the subcontinent. And this final boundary, and I'm sure we'll get into a little bit, is known as the Radcliffe Line which resulted in the division of Punjab and Bengal and essentially placed Hindu majority areas in India and Muslim majority areas in Pakistan. So something interesting about the Radcliffe line, and I thought this was 
this is fascinating and kind of disturbing all at the same time. So this the Radcliffe line is the boundary, right? It's the demarcation line between India and Pakistani portions of the Punjab and Bengal provinces of British India. It's named after the architect, uh, Sir, Cyril, Sir Cyril Radcliffe. He was a British lawyer who had been commissioned to equitably divide 450,000 square kilometers of territory that covered 88 million people. Um, I love the word equitable. I think <laughs> that is very interesting. To achieve this monumentous, monumentic task, he was given five whole weeks <laughs> from the time My of his goodness. arrival in India in July of 1947 until the announcement of the line on August 17th. Incredible. So, yeah, five weeks to create borders that would, you know, I, I assume the hope was limit violence and create areas that based on communal and religious affiliation would meet the needs of those growing tensions across those those religious and, and communal groups for sure and i think even like something that needs to be said too is he was given five weeks and they and when Mountbatten came in the british government basically said you got a year and, and change to figure this out and he actually pushes up that date and he says we're going to do it sooner and part of this, a few schools of thought, some people blame him saying he just wanted to get back to England and he didn't care. I haven't, I haven't seen most historians agree with that, but there's some people who are critical of him that do say that. But a lot of it was the, the violence he was seeing. And I think you kind of mentioned it of he showed up in India and it was, I think there was the week he was there, like a thousand people were killed in a riot in some part of Northern India. And they're like, and this wasn't unusual. This is just the racial tensions were getting so hot and so fierce that he's like, if you know, is India going to break into a civil war? And the answer was probably. And the British government had no interest in sending more troops to kind of quash this based on the fact that they just fought a massive war against the Japanese and the Germans and they don't have troops to go send. They don't have money to do this. And so I, I come back to, and we talked about this with the King Leopold episode, people always blame colonization for what happened during colonization. And again, sure. there are a lot of things to point to that are terrible about colonization when it happened. I keep, and as we've learned this, I keep coming to the fact of how these colonizations end and how it's just like, here's your independence, see you later. And we're going to get into that now. And we see it in Africa and we see it all over the world. Yep. They just, so the British lose interest. They, they know they don't, this isn't profitable for them anymore and they just leave and then things happen. So again, a bit of a, a tangent there, but I think back to kind of what you were saying about like the Radcliffe line, like five weeks to not only just split it's not like he's just drawing one border too. And I think for our listeners who aren't familiar with the geography of the area, I heard someone kind of describe it in a really good way. It was to so think of a butterfly and think of like the body of the butterfly being India and the right wing being Bang what is today Bangladesh, but at the time was East Pakistan. And then mm -hmm. Pakistan today is the country we know being the left wing on the West side. So there's this massive, massive piece of land in between West and East Pakistan. And so people who are in East Pakistan, really have nothing to do with people in West Pakistan. I believe they even speak yeah. a different language. I don't think they speak Urdu in, in in Bangladesh. So he's got to not just, he's not just dividing a line saying, yeah, this river, here we go. This is two separate parts of the country that he's got to split up and he's got five weeks to do it. It's, yeah. it's unbelievable that he even did, he was even able to draw the line quick enough in five weeks, let alone 
do it equitably, as you said. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, right? Um, when I was doing, I know, like during our initial research, we kind of were thinking about focusing on on Radcliffe, but his life wasn't too interesting. Yeah. But apparently, um, and and we'll get into this, uh, we'll get into the partition a bit more. But apparently, mm-hmm. after the fact, after he had drawn these boundaries, he wanted nothing to do with the 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 result of those boundaries. Um, where I actually came across some research that said that he actually burned documentation yes, uh, and borders and maps that he had kind of iterated on these borders uh, when he was, you know, taking on this task just because he wanted nothing. Like he wanted no evidence, no documentation that could kind of point to him, you mm-hmm. know, afterwards to say that he was responsible for it. Yeah. And I saw something like he was offered some amount of money to do it. They tried to pay him and he said, absolutely not i'm not taking any money for this get me out of this country because like yeah. he knew he did a terrible job and he basically he said and people have interviewed him after the fact and he said it, this would have taken years to do properly he goes five weeks he goes i knew it was going to be terrible and i think he left india before the map was released and he i think he's reported saying to i think it was like his i don't know somebody he was close to basically saying i had to leave india because 80 million people are about to be really really angry with me yep so yeah, it's you feel for the guy being kind of thrown into it, and I don't really know what he could have. Did he do the best he could have done? Probably. What like what can anybody what do, are you in supposed to do with five weeks? Yeah. yeah, he's supposed to do with five weeks. That's and he's insane. never even been to the country before. He doesn't speak yeah. the language. He doesn't know. You know, again, Hindu, Sikh, Christians, Muslims, even Buddhists too. Like you have all yeah, these those, re- those sectarian lines, right? Like we see yeah. in the modern era. Look at the war in Iraq, right? Like look what mm-hmm. happened there. Like it was a powder keg that you know, the U S and, you know, the allies went into like a lot of similar sentiments here, right? For like, sure. Yeah. We go in, we create these artificial lines and we think it's going to be okay. And then it's like, Oh wait, we didn't expect that to happen. Well, I, I, and I think that's, there's a bit of nuance here, right? Like with the Radcliffe right. line, there was anticipation that was already in place. Um, people were anticipating this kind of two nation approach to, to, to meet the demands of the, the varying religious communities, political tensions and groups. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, but mm-hmm. it, it's interesting how this kind of all panned out. So in five weeks, he has this daunting task to essentially carve up India to meet the needs of the religious communities and create um, two nations that will appease both sides of the fence, the Hindus and the Muslims. Um, but, you know, that's a very simplified version of what's going on at, at the ground level. So essentially, so the Radcliffe lines created the division of Punjab and Bengal happens. Hindu majority areas are placed in India. Muslim majority areas are placed in Pakistan. This is obviously, you know, hurriedly executed in five weeks. It led to one of the largest migrations in human history with approximately, I've seen like a a bunch of estimations, but it seems like 10 to 15 million people crossing across the borders is something that's pretty commonly stated. It was accompanied by large-scale violence. Communal tensions erupted into riots and massacres. Hundreds of thousands, up to 2 million people died, you know, approximately based on guesses. It led to the first Indo-Pakistani war over the Plinsi state of Kashmir, which is still a disputed territory today. Um, You know, their political status remains a point of contention still in the modern era in 2023 between India and Pakistan. And it continues to have like these profound impacts uh, that are still felt today. And I think when you kind of unpack the reason behind this, right? Like, you know, when I started the research, what was the push? What was the divide? Like, why was a two nation approach the thing that needed to be done? 
And some of the reasons that I came across that I think are worthwhile to note, you know, the biggest one is religious differences. So India, I think, has, you know, I'm going to list about eight religions, but I'm sure there are dozens more, you know, across many different groups. I think I even remember reading somewhere a long time ago that there's over like 60 different dialects across India. So it is a very heterogeneous population with significant religious, cultural and linguistic differences. And two of the largest groups in India are Hindus and Muslims. And there have been significant historical and present day tensions between those communities, which were exacerbated by historical antagonisms and, you know, these contemporary political developments that just keep adding fuel to this fire that's already been in place for such a long time. And just to get a sense of like the religious mix of people that are or communities that exist in India in this time. So you have Hindus. This is the majority religion in India with roots stretching back thousands of years. You have Islam, which was brought to India at the beginning of the 7th century. You know, it grew significantly in the following centuries. It was the official uh, religion of the Mughal Empire. You know, it became a significant proportion of the population. You have Sikhism, which is, you know, a newer religion. It was founded in the Punjab region in, in the 15th century. You have Buddhism. You have Jainism. You have Christianity. You have Zoroastrianism. You even have, you know, Judaism. And then you have indigenous and and tribal religions that exist across the country that you know could probably number in the dozens if not hundreds at this point so it is a cacophony of 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 religions all kind of vying and battling for some sort of i don't want to use the word supremacy but like to be able to be the defining group that is in charge that's able to kind of have the influence that's necessary to create a state that will meet their communal and religious needs. It's almost like identity politics to uh, yeah. you know, another degree, right? <laughs> to a like, certain degree. Yeah. yeah, you're worried about I'm part of group A, but if group B gets more power, well, you know, they might push back against my group, which may or may not be true, but that's the way people look at things, right? That's how we humans do everything. We we group things together to make things, you know, easier to understand. And you know, even just going back to what you were saying about India as a country, as a country, and all the different religions and the dialects and like full on like different languages. It's amazing. That it's even a country today, really. When you when you break it down, yep. about how ethnically different so many parts of the area are, and maybe religion was the one thing that that kind of kept everything together. And we'll see is a, is a big piece to all of that. But yeah, I think we can't understate how not only religiously and ethnically diverse India is, but just how huge it is and populous and all of these things. That this is a very very unique place in the world. And to just split it with a line, good luck, right? Good luck, yeah, yeah. It's close to impossible. And I think, you know, a good a, a good kind of transition point here is just to talk about some of the key players that you know are you know full frontal when this is happening. And from from a you know Indian country perspective, we've already mentioned Nehru. He was the prominent leader of the Indian National Congress and a central figure in the Indian independence movement. Independence movement. He was closely associated with Mahatma Gandhi, and he actually took over as the first prime minister of India after independence. Uh, He was initially against the partition, but he eventually accepted it as a necessary compromise to avoid civil war to achieve independence, which is a sentiment that I think we'll we'll loop back to because it's actually quite interesting when violence does kind of break off, you know, this whole discussion around communal violence versus civil war. And then you have uh, Mahatma Gandhi, very well-known figure historically across, you know, the globe. He's a key figure in India's struggle for independence. He advocated, you know, obviously for nonviolent resistance against British rule. His vision initially was for a united India. He also reluctantly accepted the plan for partition to avoid further communal violence. 
uh, following the partition, he worked tirelessly to kind of soothe those communal tensions and prevent, prevent re retaliatory violence between Hindus and Muslims. And then lastly, you have Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Um, Jinnah was the leader of the All Indian Muslim League and the driving force behind the creation of Pakistan. He initially advocated for separate electorates and safeguards for Muslims within the United India. But over time, you know, he became convinced that Muslims would be better served by a separate nation, leading to his demand for a separate Muslim state, i.e. Pakistan. I think one thing that's interesting about, about Jinnah and Nehru that I was reading was neither one of them spoke the native their native language very well. They were both oh, gr grew up in English-speaking homes, were, were educated in the British system, went to British schools. Um, especially Nehru, I think, was like very, very high society um, in India, which I just find a little bit interesting as these are the two guys who are kind of leading this Hindu world and this Muslim world out into these new countries, but really are almost a product of a British, well, maybe half Same British Gandhi, system. Right? Yeah. Same with Gandhi. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I, I just find that always a little bit fascinating how, you know, this this level of class and this house, like how you can be so separated from the people you're trying to lead when you can't even really speak the language. Well, like when Nehru makes his speech about the beginning of India, he doesn't say it in Hindi. He makes makes a speech in English. Like it's just a very <laughs> odd, odd thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, that that's a very interesting symbol of terms of like how pervasive colonialism, this kind of interplay of culture and exchange is happening at the highest levels of power and influence yeah. uh, on this kind of colonial landscape. Um, I just want to pivot back to this kind of idea, uh, this kind of two nation theory, which I kind of dove into a little bit. I thought was very interesting. So this two nation theory, so it, it was uh, largely propelled by the Muslim League under the leadership of Jinnah. Uh, he kind of proposes two nation theory, which was, you know, it suggested that Hindus and Muslims were two distinct nations. They had their own customs, they had their own religions and traditions, and that they should have separate homelands within India. This theory started to gain traction amongst many Muslims who felt that their rights and interests would not be adequately protected by a predominantly Hindu India, which, sure, you know, I, I think that rationale I, 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 is, is reasonable from their perspective if, if that's what their concern is. And then you kind of look at that subtext about, you know, these, these communal and religious tensions and you compare and contrast that to the historical way that the British has kind of ruled in India, which has been this, um, I believe the words that are often described was like divide and conquer or divide and rule. That mm -hmm. was the kind of colonial policy, right? which continued to, sorry, contributed to these kind of deepening communal div divisions. The British administration, you know, they played Hindus and Muslims against each other to prevent opposition to colonial rule. Um, in the end, the British government under Lord, Mountba uh, Lord Mountbatten, you know, they had to grant independence to the two separate states, a decision that was, you know, influenced in part by British's, uh, Britain's weakened post-World War II condition. But you can see how that kind of divide and rule approach really right. exacerbated those communal tensions, which ultimately led them to having to make the decision to create two nation states. So, you know, I'm sure they didn't have the foresight to predict a you know, a total economic collapse and downturn after World War II. But in some ways, it's it's hard not to see how they had kind of, you know, planted the seeds of their own post-imperial deconstruction in India after the fact. For sure. And and the thing is, like, the caste system that we know about in India where basically mm -hmm. social ranking system, for lack of a better term, you know, had, had existed for 
many, many years in India, even prior to the British rule. But the British are smart and they know that they can use this as a way to play off each other. Like you were saying, you can use religion, you can use social rank. And now you start putting people into these little boxes and saying, hey, box one, you're doing what we want, but box two isn't doing what we want. Or this person is in box two that we've just created and we're going to say some terrible things about them and make box one do our dirty work for us. And it's a clever tactic exactly. if you're trying to keep peace and try to look, hey, like, because if... You know, what if box one and box two start talking to each other and saying, you know, these British guys, I don't know if they're they're the best rulers for us. You have to have some infighting. You have to have people who are loyal to the British and things like that. So I can understand why they did it. It's but again, it did it did it set them up for success in this case? No, no chance. And I think to your point of did they know World War Two was going to come around the corner? No. But also a hundred years ago, they probably weren't thinking about oh, well, we got to get out of India at some point. Yeah. You know, yeah. those conversations started in the earliest twentieth century and even into the nineteenth century a little bit, but that was just kind of par for the course in the way the world worked. And like even with some of this, uh, when the British started doing censuses of India, they were starting to ask more questions about religion social rank these sort of things and so now people are looking at these sheets basically saying oh i'm in this group and then they're seeing reports of oh well in your village you're a minority or you're a majority and your neighbor's actually part of the minority and it just kind of spirals into again identity politics to another level and then you know the british are ready to leave the british troop counts have gotten down so there's not as much protection you know especially they say like in the countryside like in the cities maybe you had more police forces but little villages out in the countryside like that's the army's responsibility yep so you don't have british troops you also don't have a lot of indian troops because they've been sent to europe they've been sent to burma they've been sent all over the place to fight and so it kind of becomes a bit of a free-for-all and, and the violence i think yeah comes from two places is just the lack of authority but then also this deep-seated kind of i wouldn't say hatred just just questioning of the other and then the British Nailed putting it. them in boxes, right? Yeah, it's that fear of marginalization, right? Like, yeah, they use that divide and rule kind of approach, and then eventually it crystallized, um, where you know the Muslim minority—well, they're not really a mi minority, sorry—they they feared that they would be politically and economically and socially marginalized in an independent India that would be dominated by the majority mm -hmm. of uh, of of Hindus. So they had, you know, I. A, I'm sure they seemed legitimate fears of, you know, the Hindi language being imposed on them. Right. Concerns about their representation in government, the military and civil services. Hard not to take that kind of leap logically when you're in a, you know, theater of imperialism where you're actually seeing it happen. And do you want it to happen again with a religious community that you're already sharing a country with? Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've talked about too, like, a Hindu man from from Bengal and a pack and a sorry a Muslim man from Bengal are going to have a lot more in common than a, a Hindu man from Bangalore, which is in the south, um, than a, a Hindu man in, in Bengal. Like there, that's a very different culture, and those two people are very different. But the Muslim man and the Hindu man, outside of where they go to to worship and the God that they believe in and the religious texts that they read, they're going to eat the same food. They're going to listen to the same music. They're going to have the same group of friends. Yep. It's just an odd, odd way to to look at all of these things. But again, it's easy to put things in a box and just say, hey, I'm the the Hindu leader and you vote for your religion. And if you don't, like, are you a, you're almost like a traitor to your religion. And I can t I totally get where where Jinnah is coming from, from the Muslim League standpoint of if this constitution isn't done correctly, we could just be 
pushed aside and, and this Hindu majority can run this country for the rest of time. Yep. And I think we, we've kind of, we've talked around this topic already a couple of times, and I think we'll probably jump into it now as we get into the later half of this episode, but this idea of limiting violence, mm-hmm. right? We've already heard Mountbatten talk about it. We've talked, uh, you know, I've mentioned Gandhi, Jinnah, Nehru have all kind of mentioned limiting communal violence. And I, it's a very important, but very, you know, heavy part of this conversation, For post, sure. even pre and post partition, right? So the partition happened in 1947, and it kind of loops back to our conversation. Was this a civil war? It doesn't technically meet the definitions of a civil war in the sense that it was not an organized, declared conflict between factions within a country. However, it did you know, have this large-scale communal violence, riots, mass casualties across Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs who found themselves on the quote-unquote wrong side of the newly drawn borders while millions of people migrated between the new nations of India and Pakistan. And sometimes it's kind of colloquially referred to as a civil war. But again, I think if you look at what most historians say, it lacked the organized military structure typically associated with conflicts that we would call civil wars. I want to show or get into some examples. So the partition of India happened in 1947, um, which led to even more violence. But violence was actually happening pre-partition as well. Um, so you have the one that I kept coming across was Direct Action Day, which happened in 1946. Uh, it's also known as the Great Calcutta Killings. This was a day of widespread rioting and violence between Hindus and Muslims in the city of Calcutta in Bengal. Uh, it was sparked by a call from the Muslim League for a demonstration of Muslim unity in support of the demand for Pakistan. It's estimated that that day alone resulted in 4,000 to 10,000 people dying, wow. with more than 15,000 being injured. And I think yes. to your point earlier of like this not being a civil war, I think we got to kind of double down on this. Mm-hmm. Again, this starts as a demonstration, you know, maybe a peaceful protest. Maybe there's a little bit of animosity there, but you can just see how quickly things come can come undone, especially if you don't have that strong military presence. Someone says something bad to somebody, somebody throws a rock, somebody throws something, somebody gets killed, and then it just can spiral out of control. And, and then you have not just afternoon of killings like days and days and days of just the city essentially on fire and people just killing each other at an unprecedented rate and it's it's this it's scarier than almost like a civil war because a civil war you can understand like we look at the american civil war north versus south slavery that's the problem we're fighting for this this is the muslim league demonstrating for their independence but it turns into this like mob violence and almost this level of i don't even know what to call it just like human nature taking over and rationality is being thrown out the yep. window. And well, it's and a it goes, scary It's thought. on both sides, right? It That's goes on both point. sides. Yeah. Like, so you have direct action day in 1946, but you also have the Nokali riots in 1946. So this happens in the district of uh, Nokali in Bengal. Widespread violence against Hindus were reported, including forced conversions to Islam, looting and killing. The violence lasted about a week and left an estimated 5,000 Hindus dead. Then you get into the violence that happened in the province of Punjab, which actually witnessed some of the worst violence during the partition. So we're talking about mass killings, forced conversions, mass abductions, brutal sexual violence against women. Uh, We're going to get into that, sadly. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also going to get into, you know, these things called ghost trains, which super, super chilling. Trains carrying refugees across the new borders were often ambushed. Their passengers were massacred. Both sides were involved in the violence leading to hundreds of thousands of deaths. The city of Lahore, which was a mixed city, 
was almost entirely Muslim by the end of, you know, the violence of the, of, of, in 1947. And just even, you mentioned Lahore, just one thing to go back to the impossible task that, that Radcliffe had. I read something that Lahore was, I believe, majority Muslim in terms of the citizens, but in terms of like economic wealth was majority Hindu. There was this smaller amount of Hindus who owned a lot of land and property and, and things like that. So what decision does he have to make here? Does he give it to India because it's more Hindu or does he give it to Pakistan because it's more Muslim? He ends up giving it to Pakistan. But like, I know people who, who said that their, their family was from Lahore, but they were Hindu. So they just had to get up and go. And I think that's something we, we should probably touch on Richie is how this kind of all came together, right? Like the violence is one thing, but it's yep. the, so I guess there's two things. The first is India and Pakistan declare um, independence back to back on two different days. But the border doesn't come out until after that. So you hear about mm-hmm. Pakistan has been created. Woohoo, every, all, everybody's happy about this new um, country of Pakistan. But you're sitting there in Punjab being like, where, what country am I in? I don't know. And then the, the map comes out and it's now a mad dash because all of this racial, sorry, not racial, like religious violence is going on. And you hear stories of, hey, you're, you know, your next door neighbor's Muslim saying to you guys, hey, we just found out that an armed gang is coming to kill any Hindus that they see in Lahore. You have to go. And people were like, oh, okay. So they're just, you know, throwing things in a bag and going, leaving their, they're not selling their homes. They're not taking no. all their belongings with them. They're just getting up and going. And then they're just, they're walking, they're getting on trains, they're trying any way. And they're just, again, that's what we call it, this mass migration of people and the millions and millions and millions. And they just don't know where to even go. A lot of them just show up in Delhi and live in refugee camps for like, there's some that live in there for over a decade because they had nothing and they just had to move. And it goes both ways. There's Muslims living in what's now India. And they're like, Hey, you got to get out of here because there's a Hindu gang that's coming to kill any Muslims that they see. I don't know how you can like, it's, it's one of the most crazy things to me because it's not just, you have to go and you have no time to do it. You also think you might come back. That's what a lot of people thought. They were like, okay, well, yeah. I'll go and I'll just come back once the violence settles down. But you'll never go back. And you hear these stories of people, they have like, they put like sand in a jar when they left and they held on to it for the rest of their lives till the day they died. They're like, yeah, I'm from Lahore, but I'm living in India now. I can oh, never go man. back. But this That's is really important to me. And so you do hear some stories of, of people like, I think it's, you know, the millennial generation trying to connect with their grandparents and trying to, reignite you know old friendships of hey you had a friend when you were 16 or or a wife or sorry like a girlfriend or something that you had to leave and you never got to see them again because you just picked up and went and then right in between you this this border was created so it's there's a lot and i would encourage all the listeners to to seek some of this out i believe it was last year was the 75th year of the partition and a lot of really good work specifically in in britain this was done Um, people recorded a lot of stories of their grandparents who talked about their experiences yeah. and they're, they're quite chilling for sure. Yep. But there's also a lot of good that comes out of it too. You do hear, you know, Muslim neighbors helping their Hindu neighbors hide from the mobs, making sure they got out of the city safely, warning them that, that things were happening. So there's definitely a minority that was the violent type, but you don't need much more than a minority to, to make things happen. But you did hear about a lot of good that came out of it. And then I even read a story about one girl who, same sort of situation muslim family helps her family get out of i think it was lahore and she went back to lahore and, and ended up finding the family helps her family escape and was able to meet them and you know thank them for everything that they did but they were like 
we never saw them again. We, we didn't know what happened. We didn't even know if they were alive. And this is 67 years later. So it's a very, very unique situation. And again, we talked about, we think of like something like the Holocaust that just happened years before. The amount of death and the amount of stories that you come out of neighbors hiding neighbors from people who want to do them harm, you know, similar to, you know, Christian neighbors hiding their Jewish neighbors and trying to save people and definitely different circumstances in the way it was mm-hmm, carried out. Sure. But it's, again, it's a, it's a human story and there's, there's a lot of correlations and comparisons you can draw. But yeah, it's, I definitely encourage everybody to go out and, and seek out some of those stories because they are, they are heart wrenching and terrible, but they also, you do see some, you know, when things, when the chips are down, I think people are, are quite good at, at heart um, and will sacrifice their family's lives or even risk everything to just save somebody could be a stranger could be a neighbor so yeah dark history but we see a lot of good sometimes yeah no i i I agree i think it's in those darkest of moments where like the light can shine the brightest right especially in in, in historical events like this and i think to your previous point about this kind of mass migration and 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 the boundary not being shared i when i was when i was doing some research people were moving in anticipation Mm. of where they thought the borders were going to be (laughs) oh my goodness so Think about that, right? Like this added layer of complexity that people are anticipating this kind of um, repatriation of the borders, two nations being created. So they're trying to jump the gun and settle themselves into an area where they foresee that, you know, their their religious or communal groups are going to be um, settled, you know, once the border is laid out. So you'll, you know, now you find yourself, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people have moved to areas that they anticipate they will end up settling in the long term. Then the border is released. Wow. And now they are nowhere near where they're supposed to be. Right? Like it's it's a pretty chilling reality. And I know we're almost at the hour mark. So before we get into kind of the decision analysis and you know when we talk about the decision making process here, I think just to kind of double down the violence, just to, you know, make it tangible. And, you know, it, this goes way deeper than what we're going to get into. So I, you know, right. to Paul, Paul, to your point, there's some great content out there. Yes, it is heavy. Yes, it is very disturbing, but it does, you know, make it real. And there's some really great stories um, that you can kind of view. I, I saw a bunch of interviews on YouTube when I was doing research that kind of left me just... Mm-hmm. Totally distraught, but there's two things I want to touch on here. This one thing, uh, ghost trains. Mm. So this was really chilling. Um, so during the partition, ghost trains became this chilling symbol of violence and turmoil that marked the period. So these trains had been filled with refugees seeking to cross these newly formed borders between India and Pakistan, uh, hoping to reach the safety of their desired destination. Um, however, due to the communal violence, many of these trains never reached their destinations with their passengers alive. They were often attacked by armed mobs and passengers and were killed due to their religious affiliation. These trains would eventually arrive at their destination filled with not living passengers, but with corpses. Hence the term ghost trains. Oof. And My- images of these ghost trains arriving at stations in cities like Lahore, Amritsar with their gruesome cargo, you know, shocked the public. And it fueled further cycles of violence and retribution between these different religious communities. So now you're having this kind of super violent feedback loop and each yeah. incident stirred more fear. It stirred more hatred and, uh, and this greater burning desire for revenge amongst, amongst these groups. Yeah. I think that's a good point. And especially like with all these refugees moving across, right, you see people come from a very violent area where they were kicked out by Muslim or, or Hindu mobs 
and they tell the people when they get to we'll say safety or to an area where they believe is safe they tell these stories and you're right it's just that feedback loop of just violence on violence on violence because did you hear what those muslims did over in the town over there exactly. or the hindus did in that town over there oh you have some hindus down the street how the heck can you even keep them here we should kick them out and it just you can see how things snowball so quickly and again with no military not strong enough to kind of sit in the middle and, and break things up. It keeps snowballing. I heard even a really disturbing story of one of these ghost trains. Um, a man had fallen asleep at the Lahore train station and was waiting for his train. And he said he woke up and he felt like his pants were all wet. And he opened his eyes and one of the trains had arrived and there was just blood essentially seeping out from all of these bodies and it was just all over the train station. And so it's like, that is the level of violence and just death that these people were seeing. And then you hear people talk about, yeah, there would just be bodies all over the place and you would just step over them. And, and it, they almost became numb to it, which is, again, another chilling, chilling feeling. But I, I just think we do need to, even though I know we're a little bit over the hour here and we might go a bit longer this week, I think it's just important to to really double down on this violence because it it's something I don't think that... I knew enough about, I think it, we knew it was violent, but I didn't realize how violent it is. Like, you know, World War II ended and you're getting violence that's even at a greater scale. Like, I think if you look at the numbers of people that were killed in World War II and then you look at the people that were compared, that were killed in the partition and how quickly it happened, the numbers are, are almost very similar, which is, I think, one of the most disturbing points. Yeah, I think I, I'm, I was being... Sikh, growing up in a Sikh household, I was quite familiar with the partition and I'm you know, also a, a huge history guy, obviously. Um, so I knew a bit about the partition. So this was a very interesting exercise for me. And the violence totally outstripped what I had expected by leaps and bounds. And I think the one part that I'll finish off with was around sexual violence that mm. occurred during the partition. And this is pretty dark. Um <laughs> So this was obviously a time of like immense human suffering and violence. And I think one of the darkest aspects of this period was the widespread sexual violence against women. It's pretty sensitive and it's pretty distressing. But during the partition, you know, historians kind of women's bodies almost became to like symbolize sites of communal violence and symbolic battlegrounds on which these notions of honor, community and nation were contested. The perpetrators often sought not just to harm the women themselves, but to dishonor the men of the other community by violating their women. So again, you're seeing this mm. new theater of us versus them, but this theater is actually the, the women within these communities. And, and the scale of violence is just, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around. It's estimated that anywhere between 75,000 to 100,000 women were abducted and raped during the partition. The violence was so widespread and it occurred on both sides of the new border. So it affected all religious communities, Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs. The violence was often brutal and dehumanizing. You know, women were not only raped, um, they were gang raped, mutilated, branded, and killed. There were instances of women being paraded naked in public. Their bodies were marked with symbols of the other religion. You have abductions and forced marriages. Thousands of women were abducted during this time. They were taken away from their families, forcibly married or forced conversion was, you know, a, a very uh, common theme amongst amongst the violence to the religion of the abductors. Some of them even bore children from these forced unions, which obviously added like a totally different layer of complexity that they had to deal with. And then it gets even darker, which is crazy. 
like you have self-inflicted harm and family killing. So out of the fear of sexual violence, right? And the potential to dishonor your family was so great that some women were killed by their own family members oh to save God. their honor. And this practice, I, I know, it, it, you know, sometimes you get in the headlines in, in modern news, but this idea of honor killing, it's a grim choice that was made under duress. There were also cases of women who chose to end their own lives to avoid falling into the oh my God. hands of violent mobs. And there's actually a, one account that I'll uh, talk about. It's from a survivor. Um, his name is Gurbachan Singh. He recollected his mother and sisters jumping into a well to avoid being captured by a mob during the communal riots in uh, Rawalpindi. He stated, quote unquote, my mother said she was going to buy us some time. She asked us to run and then she jumped into the well with my sisters. Yeah. And that's one of it's thousands, tens of thousands of stories who I, where I'm sure incredibly similar. Like, could you like... I can't. No, I'm not even gonna say. Can you imagine? Because you can't. No, you, I can't. You simply can't. I can't. You could try, but yeah. As I you, was reading it, like I, yeah, I, I just couldn't. It just it seems like so, so distant of a yeah. reality. And the thing too that's even worse of all of this is a lot of times these are your neighbors. These may be people you know, yeah. Yeah. right? Who are part of these mobs who are knocking on your door saying you have to leave. Yeah, you know, it's. It's the worst that humanity can get to. And I think actually I just remembered here, I have a quote that somebody said about the partition and all the violence. And I think it sums it up really, really well. He said, human beings had instituted rules against murder and mayhem in order to distinguish themselves from beasts of prey. None was observed in the murderous orgy that shook India to the core at the dawn of independence. Don't think you can put it really any more perfect than that is no. yeah. complete breakdown of societal norms, complete breakdown of respect for the other and just complete acting out of fear and mob mentality and i don't even know what else just pure brutality on a level yeah. that's hopefully we never see again and again the scale just keeps coming back to me of how many people are moving and how many people are running and how many people are disappearing and it's uh yeah it's tough yep so I think we've we said we do need to do give it justice on the level of the violence and i think i think i've had enough to be totally honest yeah, i don't yeah, really want to i think we've we've made it very clear that this this is a very difficult thing to study but again this is important we we talk about that how dangerous using identity politics and grouping ourselves and seeing people as just part of a group it's probably one of the worst things you can do as a human so you know seeing your neighbor as a part of a different religion versus they're just your neighbor and they're your friend yeah. and you know maybe they don't cut their grass every day and that maybe that annoys you like that's something <laughs> yeah, you can yeah, get yeah. upset about but not the sure. not what they go to do um and worship so let's kind of wrap this up with with doing a little bit of analysis on on the decision itself so i guess to just kind of recap the decision being louis mountbatten comes in he's tasked with overseeing the independence of india that could be a partition. It could be not be a partition. It could sure. be something else. And he's basically given a year and change to do so. And he makes a decision to push that time up and to give Radcliffe five weeks and then to get out. So in terms of difficulty of the decision, a year to figure out what the heck you're going to do in India with no support from back home, very limited resources. I think it's quite tough oh, for yeah. anybody to go in. Yep. Like, I don't know if there's a right answer to what he had to do. So I think 
I don't know, unless you have any other opinions, Richie. I'm fair to say, like, this is this is a very, very difficult decision. He's dealt a very difficult hand. I think the quality of his decision is going to be a much more interesting conversation. But <laughs> in terms of difficulty, it can't get much worse than this. You have all of this violence. No, you have no I would support. Agree with you. Yep. Your country's bankrupt. Yeah. Yep. So, I, I totally agree. I think it's the complexity of the decision is probably the highest, one of the highest levels of complexities that we've looked at mm-hmm. throughout all of our episodes, considering what we know. The political tensions, the religious tensions, the backdrop of World War II, the communal violence that's already raging, the expectation of increasing violence that's already being anticipated, right? Yeah, I I totally agree with you. For sure. Yeah. And I think he's been given direct orders from London on how to that he needs to basically get in and get out by a certain date. And may have been said, but may have been implied is make England look good at the same yeah. time. So much for that. Yeah, right. If it breaks into into civil, complete civil war, and the British get kicked out forcefully, that's going to hurt their place in the world stage and all of these sort of things. So let's get into maybe him and, and then the quality and the legacy of this decision. Like the quality, I think we can both agree was was quite poor. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it's. I wouldn't say is like the lowest we could possibly rate it, just because I think the constraints that he had to to work around were were not great. Um, I think, again, if if there was no partition, would there have been a full-on civil war between Muslims and Hindus? Maybe, maybe not. We will never know. We'll never know, exactly. But what we do know is that the violence was extreme, and this may have been a situation where we pull the Band-Aid off really quickly and we have indiscriminate violence for a few years or slower-scale violence over a period of decades. Sure. Who, Who knows, right? Nobody would ever really know. So, again... The execution, I think, is is where we've talked about is that can't be much lower. Like bringing in a lawyer from Britain who's never been east of Paris was kind of the the quote that everybody uses to break up India into two kind of two countries, but then like almost a third if you count East Pakistan, which is now Bangladesh. Also doing it along religious lines where you have a very big Sikh population, but they're Hindu technically, according to this breakup. Like did you know what I mean? Like it's just it was it was just a terrible way to do it, and I understand why they did it because it's probably the quickest way to do it and split people up by religion, draw some lines, even though those lines cut through people's houses because they didn't have time to go check if the maps were up to date and things like that. I don't know. It's just a mess from the beginning to end. Yeah, I think my takeaway in terms of the quality of the decision, I would probably give it one of the, like, probably the lowest score mm-hmm. because I think from my perspective, at least when I'm thinking about it, British have been in India for almost 300 years <laughs> at this point. So I would hope within three centuries, you've kind of figured out something about the Indian population and the contentions and the nuances that exist between these different communities. Right. Um, and then the short sightedness of spending 300 years, you know, this is the, cr- this is the jewel of the British empire, right? <laughs> Quote unquote. Yes. And then after three centuries to give, a year and then five weeks to draw a boundary on these totally artificial lines seems so poorly executed and thought through like i and but again i would probably nuance this because we talked about the violence we talked about the communal killings the escalation the scale of it and the anticipation for increasing violence it seemed like everyone was acutely aware that the objective was to limit violence because everyone seemed to have the sense at least the stakeholders that we talked about yep that if this wasn't done, violence would continue, it would continue to grow, and the scale of it would continue to expand. 
I was watching a YouTube video. I think it was a TED Talk video. It was just like a like a three minute short. It was animated and it kind of started off with a pretty powerful sentiment. It was like for every murder, there was a murderer. For every rape, there was a rapist. Mm. So, and I think that kind of hit home with me in a couple of ways. One, it's super, super, super easy to point the finger at the empire yep. and say it was poorly done. And I would agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. It was very poorly executed. There was not enough time taken to do this in any meaningful way. Even with that being said, I don't know how you do this in a meaningful way. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I genuinely don't. Um, and then you compound that with the reality of the actual infighting that was happening on the ground. Yeah, I think the quality of the decision was was probably one of the poorest. Yeah, I think so. And again, you, you need to stop the violence in, in some way. Yep. But at the same time, just waking up one morning and saying, here's the border, have at it. I, I don't know if, it, yeah, there's, there's, this is definitely like, and I think I read something, there was some studies done in somewhere in England at the time saying, if we're going to do this properly, we need five years to figure all of this out. And you have to deal with the competing factions. You have the Muslim League, you have the Indian Congress, all of these things kind of coming together. And you're going to have to deal with that. And it's going to be really hard. But guess what? You have a responsibility. You have this colony. And again, I come back to the way you leave the colonies, I think, is more important than the way you actually ruled it. There's, yep. again, longer periods of time. But like, you can't just say, we've kind of oppressed this place for 300 years and we're just going to give it independence. Even if that's what they want, because everyone wants independence, they want to govern themselves. But if you don't give them the tools to do so after you've held them back for so long this is what this is what happened so yeah i think we can if there's blame to be put on i think it is the british empire as a whole but i think to your point sure. so there are individual actions that everyone has to be in control of their individual actions but i think we've learned here that humans are humans and we do have some dark sides to us and yeah. i like to think i always like to put myself in those shoes like if i grew up in india and it was i heard about family members or something being killed by another religious group I can't say I wouldn't be out in the streets trying to fight back and get revenge. Like it's a yeah, scary, it's a reality dark it, right? thing, but yeah. I can't, I'm not going to sit here on my high horse and say, Oh no, I would never do something like that. I think it's, it's just who we are as humans, unfortunately. So I think the last piece we talk about is legacy. And I don't even think we need to really talk about yeah. that. Yeah. That's yeah. can't get much lower than, you know, creating almost a permanent divide between a group of people who pretty much very, very similar other than the religion that they have. And I think I've I've mentioned this to you offline is, you know, growing up in Canada, we have big Indian population, big Pakistani population. Every time I've gone to a workplace or wherever it might be, there's an Indian person, a Pakistani person, and they're always best friends because their cultures are so similar. They're able to, to you know, eat the same food, talk about their culture, all of these sort of things. And I think we see that a lot in the West when people have immigrated away from those hard divides. Yep. But when you kind of look at where people are in India today and in where they are in Pakistan, the the politics and everything can kind of bring up those emotions again and bring up that pain that still exists because there's people still alive who've, who've gone through this and remember all of these terrible things happening. So it's one of those things where it's going to take who knows how many years to, to heal that pain until, you know, Pakistani people and Indian people are able to, to look at each other the same way they did before the partition. So, yep. yeah, I think it's it's a terrible, terrible legacy that has been left on the world and it's going to take, it took 300 years for the British to, to colonize and, and break things together. It may take 300 years to, to undo all of that. Yep. Totally agree. Awesome. All right. I think we, we can wrap it up there and 
kind of, you know, walk away a little bit, definitely not smiling coming away from this one, but I think learning a lot and seeing that when we talk about number of people impacted by something, I think this might be maybe the highest of, of anything we've looked at and yep. especially it being a little bit closer to home for, for us, just knowing people who have relatives or family members who have been through this, yep. it's uh, it definitely hits home a little bit more and it makes it a little bit more personal for, for us. So I think that's yep. uh, something I can take away from this and being able to know a little bit more about people that are close to you is always important. So I think that's pretty awesome. Yep. hundred percent. Awesome. Thanks everybody. Thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the History in Motion podcast. If you enjoyed our journey through time, please subscribe, rate us, and share the podcast with friends. Your support helps keep history alive. Until next time.